0: Hello and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard, I'm a Mastering Engineer and I run the Production Advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing and mastering your music. And with me as always this week is my co-host John Tidy from reaperblog.net.
1: Hello everyone, really excited for this episode.
0: And also with me this week we have a special guest who is also a Reaper fan. Um, His name is Dan Worrell. I'm sure most of you listening to this probably already know his work. If the name doesn't ring a bell immediately, if you've watched any of FabFilter's recent videos, you've probably heard his voice and will recognize it when he starts talking. I've been an admirer of Dan's work for years. I've probably recommended his video about the differences between phase linear and minimum phase EQ. I don't know, Uh, several times a month ever since he released it. Um, He also has his own YouTube channel where there's a ton of great content. Um, And one of my favorites recently, I think the title was Why DJs Like Loud Music, brackets, because DJs are idiots. Was that close enough, Dan? Close,
2: yeah. (laughs) Loud Masters.
0: Love masters, that's right. Um, which uh, is not nearly as offensive to DJs as you might think from the title. I do recommend everybody takes a look. Anyway, Dan, welcome
2: to The Mastering Show. Hi, hi, and thank you for having me. And I, I was quite rude to DJs in that video, to be fair.
0: <laughs> well, not all DJs. I mean, you made it clear it wasn't all DJs, and the ones you were talking about probably it. Des- no. Anyway, also, Dan's latest video, I won the loudness war. Um, is well worth a watch and a listen to anybody who hasn't already seen it. So we'll put links to those uh, in the show notes at themasteringshow.com. I strongly recommend everybody listening to this checks them out. The topic this episode is possibly a little bit theoretical, a little bit... It's definitely nerdy. It's inspired by another video that Dan did recently talking about nonlinear processing in audio and this is a term that is being talked about more often and often with quite a bit of confusion surrounding it. It's quite a fascinating topic and we were just discussing whether how practically beneficial it is to understand it. We think maybe it is worthwhile to get a grip on this topic. You'll have to let us know when (laughs) we get to the end of the episode. Um, So the terms linear and non-linear are mathematical terms and pretty much most people with a basis in maths understanding will kind of know immediately what they mean. Um, A linear process is basically something where the input is proportional to the output, but it's not nearly so easy to understand what those terms mean when you apply them to audio processing. So I'm going to throw Dan straight in at the deep end and ask him to have a go at explaining linear and non-linear processing
2: to us and the difference. So a linear process, the most typical example that we normally think of is a clean digital EQ, such as, for example, the famous FabFilter Pro-Q3, or probably the stock EQ in your whatever DAW you use. It's referred to as linear because the input level doesn't matter. So if you boost the gain by 12 dB, the output level will go up by 12 dB, but absolutely nothing else changes about process that's happened in the EQ, it will still boost by the same amount at the same frequencies, cut by the same amount at the same frequencies, and that input gain change won't make any difference at all, other than to the gain. A non-linear process is much harder to predict. A change in input gain might not result in the same corresponding change in output gain, and it might result in much more complex changes like extra content being added in the form of extra harmonics, intermodulation, that kind of stuff. So distortion is nonlinear. Saturation, which we often use as a term for a subtle kind of harmonic distortion, nonlinear Compression is also non-linear because it adds harmonics and the output level doesn't change in proportion to the input level by definition, by design, with a compressor. So maybe the most important thing to know about non-linear processes is that the order matters very much with nonlinearities. with linear processes the order doesn't matter at all really you can take uh, two different signals you can eq them or filter them with a linear filter or eq then sum them together and you will get the same result as if you summed them together first and then filtered them with that linear eq wouldn't make any difference what order you did that in but if it's a nonlinear filter, a nonlinear EQ, a saturating filter, for example, then it does make a difference. Filtering them first won't give the same result. Filtering them first, then summing them won't give the same result as summing them first and then filtering them. So on a practical level, that's maybe where it's most important to understand the differences. So if you've got a nonlinearity in your processing chain, then the order of whether you EQ before it or after it really does make a difference.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a great kind of point to latch onto. My favourite example of that is is just a simple compressor. I mean, people often ask me why I... Well, they ask me, do you tend to EQ before or after compression most often? And I always answer that when I'm mastering, I prefer to EQ before compression. And the reason is, I mean, the example I like to give that people will have heard before if you've listened to the show for a while, if you imagine a track with a really pounding kick drum going into a compressor the compressor is going to react to that kick drum and you're going to hear pumping and breathing in the the high frequency content as a result of that you could then apply an eq after that compressor to reduce the thump in the kick drum to get a more balanced tonal result that will work but the pumping and breathing is there in the signal even though you've eq'd it out afterwards whereas if you balance the signal going in and reduce that pounding kick drum, somewhat going into the compressor you'll get less pumping and breathing you'll get a similarly balanced eq result at the end but with less of the compression artifacts possibly no compression artifacts or or artifacts you don't even notice um depending on the eq that went in so my preference when i'm mastering because i'm usually going for to to a result where everything feels invisible where nobody can really tell what it is i've done they just think it sounds better (laughs) um my preference is to balance the eq going in rather than coming out the other end and that's because the compression is a nonlinear process so that the order you do things in really matters john could you have any examples of this kind of thing
1: it's pretty common to uh, eq before compression or eq before a gate um things like that um the other day i was doing a uh, working on a mix with someone and um we're talking about eqing the reverb and that's that's where we didn't hear a difference before and after. And I was expecting more of a difference. Um, I don't know if it's just that EQ or just, I guess it depends on the re- reverb algorithm, whether it's nonlinear or not. And uh, But an EQ on its own would be a linear
0: process in most cases. Yeah, reverb is an interesting one because I was just thinking about that as you were talking. I guess it would depend whether there's an element of feedback, potentially, in the re- in the reverb. You know, if there's early reflections, perhaps. That's a tricky one. What do you think, Dan?
2: I think that reverb is linear unless it's qualified with something else. So unless, uh, unless it's specifically a non-linear reverb, I think it's linear. I think rooms tend to be linear until you reach extreme sound pressure levels and then things maybe start to go weird. But um, for example, the FabFilter Pro-R plugin, I think they would consider that to be a linear plugin. There's a a built-in EQ, but there's no choice to have it pre-reverb or post reverb, because they don't consider that to be important because it's a linear reverb. That's my understanding of it.
1: Because conceptually I I I think of EQing the reverb first because like I don't want as much low end to go into the reverb where it can become boomier or
2: anything. But
1: I guess it doesn't matter.
2: It can depend on the reverb. So there are reverbs that, especially things like plate emulations, might well include some saturation, in which case definitely non-linear. Also if you've got something like ducking in there, again, definitely non-linear will make a difference whether you EQ on the way in or the way out, barring those things. So for example, an impulse response, a convolution reverb, absolutely linear by definition, um, because all impulses are in that case definitely doesn't matter whether you put your high pass filter before the impulse or after you'll get the same result
0: you actually build up such a complex web of processing when you're mixing because i was thinking oh hang on i agree with john you would want to eq for example the high frequency out of a reverb to stop that kind of shh sound that kind of unnatural well that's that that sound that they loved so much in the 80s um late 80s early 90s um but it shouldn't make a difference. But the other thing that will often happen is, you know, one pl- time when that is particularly annoying is on S sounds, on sibilant sounds, um, and that's when we would quite often reach for a de and you would DS going into the reverb um, to make sure that those – and you might not de the main signal, you might only de the reverb send, but a de is a non-linear process because it's effectively compression – but especially yeah. if we were using a dynamic EQ, you, because it's an EQ and you know that EQ is linear, you can start to, it's kind of, this is why I say it's, it's It's all very clear in the mathematical sense, but when you start trying to figure out in your head whether this process or that is linear or non-linear, it can be uh, really confusing. And like as you say, because there are different types of reverb, they work in different ways and they, you know, some of them do some things and some of them do things another way.
1: I, I didn't even consider dynamic EQs as being like an, ex- an exception to all EQs are uh, linear processes. So
0: Well, certainly not all EQs are linear, because if it's an EQ that emulates an analog EQ, if you think of the, well, you have to be careful because some emulations are more faithful than others, but if you had yeah. an SSL channel strip that was doing a really good job of Emulate. Well, actually SSL is, processing is pretty clean, but if you drive them hard enough, they're going to distort yeah. in some kind of way. They will go, they'll start behaving in a non-linear way. I mean, there's another complication, right? Is that you can have things that start off being linear and then when you push them much harder, then they start behaving in a non-linear way.
1: Well, well even like if, if you apply like parameter modulation with an audio signal to control a parameter and an EQ. It's a clean digital EQ that's a linear process, but that you're applying, uh, it would create distortion in some way by using an audio input, turning it into a dynamic EQ.
2: Yeah, well, when you do that, you, you create a nonlinearity. yes. Yeah. It's the linearity of processes like EQ that make top-down mixing a good strategy, a viable strategy. So if you, if you cut 500 Hz from your drum bus, that is mathematically equivalent to cutting 500 Hz from every individual drum channel. And if you then decide subsequently that your snare is sounding a bit thin and you put some 500 Hz back in on the snare channel, that is mathematically equivalent to just cutting a bit less of that 500 hertz on the snare channel than you did on all the others. Because with linear EQ, or even with a console-style EQ that's nearly linear, it's still close enough that that's the same thing, that's equivalent. And so that's why top-down mixing can be such a powerful and fast way to work. You know, EQing a group of tracks or even your whole mix is actually mathematically equivalent to EQing them all until you start to add non-linear processes. So then, obviously, if you've got compressors on your individual channels or saturators on the bus or whatever, then it can potentially start to get different. That's a great point,
0: and I think, again, is another thing that hopefully is helpful for people listening in terms of, you know, understanding why that distinction is important. Yeah, mixed bus compression is an interesting example, right? It's absolutely, I don't know about required, but certainly a very um, normal thing to do in certain genres, um, but it you do have to be careful with it. You know, the just the right amount of mixed bus compression can work wonders, and if you overdo it, it can really take all of the life out of a mix in a way that's very hard to get back at a later stage.
2: Yeah, obviously compressing a mix bus is not at all the same as compressing individual ch- individual channels. So what I'm saying there only really applies to EQ. But nevertheless, EQ is such an important part of mixing. If you can EQ one bus channel instead of EQing 12 individual drum channels, that can save quite a lot of time, get you further down the mix quicker, get you to the point where you're actually making good decisions because you've got good context for them, you know. Um, so I, f- I find working quickly is really important, and usually results in a better mix. And top-down mixing, in terms of EQs like that, can can help a lot. When it comes to compressing buses, that just gives a different result, and often a more interesting result. But obviously, just like compressing individual channels, you you have to be careful not to overdo it, because you can yeah squash all the life out of your mix if you're not too careful.
0: I want to quickly take a tangent, pick up on something that, that Dan mentioned, which is, you know, this distinction between distortion and saturation. I mean, technically speaking, any kind of saturation is a distortion, but very often we use saturation processing in such a subtle way that you wouldn't ne- necessarily listen to the audio signal and say it has been distorted. Dan, I think this is something you were interested in. If you want to talk a bit more about... There's this kind of grey area, isn't there, between...
2: with all of these processes, really? There's possibly a slight terminology issue. So, every now and again, um, somebody pops up into my comments pedantically pointing out that the term saturation refers to something like tape saturating fully. So, where there are... you know, all the magnetic particles are pointing in the same direction and can't possibly take any more signal... And they will point out that actually that would represent quite hard, brutal clipping, Uh, that by the time the tape is fully saturated, you're not subtle at all. And likewise for a transformer core. But I think these people are being overly pedantic. I think the audio engineering uh, industry, we needed a term for the type of harmonic distortion that is so subtle and gentle that you don't perceive it as distortion and that you perceive it as... It can be any number of things, and this is why it's so powerful. It can be brightness, or a sheen, or warmth, or thickness, or whatever. But those extra harmonics just subtly add to the sound in a way that we often like, and that's something that we've basically adopted the term saturation for, and I think that's useful, because it tells us that we're talking about a specific type of harmonic distortion, and a specific group of Types of harmonic distortion, you know, sort of valves, tapes, transformers uh, used, you know, uh, 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 sensibly, uh, gentle, you know, as they were intended. That kind of distortion, it's become a term for that, and that's useful. We don't have really the same kind of way to distinguish between harmonic distortion and other types of distortion, such as bit crushing and sample rate reduction and that kind of thing. The term distortion is often used specifically to refer to the kind of harmonic distortion that you get when you push analogue gear too hard. And in that case, if you are using it in that way, then saturation probably is just less of that, you know. But we do perceive it very differently, you know, when you when distortion is pushed to the point where you're conscious of the intermodulation and things like that. For example, with a, a distorted guitar sound, it's very obvious that there is more being added to the sound than there is with a clean sound
1: i'm surprised that there isn't a standard kind of measurement for this like there's thd total harmonic distortion but there isn't like a you know what like how with compression it's like if it's over 10 to 1 then it's a limiter like why isn't there like a number or Mm. even like why can't we easily measure that in a
2: daw it's yeah it's a good question perhaps because distortion is Quite difficult to measure, I think, satisfactorily. Like,
1: it, it could be just any deviation from the original signal, technically.
0: Yeah. That's too broad, though, isn't it? That Then everything becomes distortion and it stops being a useful term.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there is definitely a point where we, we can hear saturation turn to distortion. But sometimes it, it can be very subtle, the difference between it the, still clean or just, and, and then
0: enhanced, and then the enhancement. Become saturation. Well, I, I think to some extent that's subjective. You know that I think if you asked ten different people or ten different mastering engineers, at which point does saturation become distortion? You know, they would all have. And the, I think the other thing is, it depends very much on the the input signal. You know, if if you're starting off with a with a band with drums, guitars, bass, you know, full arrangement, versus I don't know a soprano or a, pia- a piano solo. um In those cases, the saturation might become unpleasant much sooner you know with far less of it and you might start to say oh it's distorting much more quickly than you would in something where we're
2: used to having those flavors in the tone i was going to agree with that but qualify it by saying that even even classical musicians like harmonics and saturate they will like the sound of saturation in the right amount they will perceive their cello or whatever to be richer and more resonant and you know until you apply too much of it and they start to be consciously aware of it they will usually perceive those extra harmonics as being more hi-fi rather than less hi-fi and I think that's that's the difference for me that's what defines saturation is it tends to increase the perception that it's higher fidelity and better quality and more pristine and clean or warmer or you know just more expensive sounding generally, usually. Or brings out more detail. Yeah. Whereas once it crosses the line into you being aware of individual harmonics interacting with each other and, you know, elements of gnarliness creeping in, that can sound great. That can sound interesting, but that's where I would start to use the term distortion rather than the term saturation.
1: Yeah. For me, it's like the point where kind of the the envelope of the sound changes where the kick drum becomes longer or, you know, that sort of effect.
0: It's it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you're absolutely right, Dan. There's I know a lot of classical engineers who like using valve gear um, for all those reasons. And that's where the pedant in me starts to come out because I start to think, well, hang on, you're not revealing detail that was in the original signal. You're actually kind of enhancing it almost in a way to add detail that maybe wasn't there. But, you know, there, there's another sliding scale.
2: This is the kind of magical thing, though. Is that though the harmonic series that you add when you distort a signal is the same mathematically? It's the same harmonic series that a string produces when it vibrates or a column of air inside a. It's musical. You know, analog style harmonic distortion is inherently musical in that way. So that's why our ears tend to like it. And until it crosses the line and becomes audible, it tends to increase the sense that something is just interesting to listen to, if you see what I mean.
0: It, that's a great point, and it's a, a great opportunity for me to go off on a little, a brief tangent. And this one also is maybe a bit pedantic, but I just want to, since we're talking about these subtleties, you know, what's distortion, what's saturation, um, we, we've already kind of said, well, I don't know, have we already said? It, it might be worth saying that, technically speaking, any change to an input signal is a distortion. Uh, so even a gain change or uh, a mild EQ change. Things that are completely clean and don't introduce any distortion at all in the way that we're talking about it, the, the traditional kind of distorted sound, they've changed the input signal, so they're a distortion. Now, that's kind of not really helpful to talk about so much because it's it's more useful to talk about EQ as EQ than it is as distortion. But there are lots of other kinds of distortion as well. For example, I mean, Dan mentioned briefly reducing the sample rate causing aliasing, which is something we've talked about in other episodes, reducing the bit depth. You know, if we just imagine taking a, a decent 16 or 24-bit audio signal and reducing it to 8 bits at 16 kilohertz or something, the result is going to sound wildly distorted if it's not properly filtered and dithered. That distortion doesn't sound anything like analog saturation distortion. And the distortion caused by digital clipping doesn't sound anything like that That pleasing musical harmonic distortion that dan was describing um i think i've heard that referred to as n harmonic distortion do you guys know whether that's correct whether that basically the extra harmonics that are generated by the the distortion don't bear any musical relationship to the original signal i think that's the right term
2: yes it's it's not that they're completely unrelated to the original signal but it's um it's um also affected by the sample rate that you're going to so it's like the the, the audio is being is intermodulating with the sample rate and in a way the aliasing reflects down from that new sample rate. Right. You know, if you've got harmonics five kilohertz above your new Nyquist frequency, then they will end up five kilohertz below your new Nyquist frequency. The extra parcels that you get are a function of both the frequency you're feeding into it and the sample rate that you're reducing it to. And they both combine to reduce but yes The harmonics won't conform to the harmonic series in the same way that harmonic analog style distortion does.
0: Yeah. And they, they kind of sound harsh and grainy and all kinds of, well, I mean, it can be quite a cool effect depending on what the the music is, but, um, you know, it's, it's a very different.
2: I would use metallic as a, as a possible adjective for that kind of, kind of inharmonic partials often have a kind of metallic tone to them. Yeah, absolutely. And a kind of gnarliness that isn't there with a
1: pure harmonic series. I did a video on um, taking a tone generator, creating uh, a really high frequency tone, and then putting in um, the Air Lo-Fi plugin, which just as a sample rate divider. And um, and then that instantly generates a tone that we can hear. And then, you know, doing all sorts of modulation effects to that creates like Commodore 64's sort of like old computer aliasing distortion sounds that I really love, but uh, not something that you want in your ma- music mastering. No, exactly. As, but, a, as a byproduct of, of setting your compressor wrong or something.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. Okay, now I've got a challenge for Dan, because he's mentioned a couple of times the term intermodulation. Um, so, Dan, can you briefly tell us what intermodulation distortion is and whether it's a good or a bad thing.
2: Hmm. Intermodulation is the difference between a perfect fifth and a power chord. If you distort a single sine wave with, we're talking about harmonic, analog style harmonic distortion again now, not sample rate reduction or anything, you will get a harmonic series above it. If it's symmetrical distortion, you'll just get odd harmonics. That's an interesting little point to note. If you add two sine waves together at different frequencies and then distort them together the complexity of the output increases exponentially because you've now, you've got the harmonic series above each of those individual sine waves, but the two sine waves also start to affect each other. Uh, The way I like to think about this, you imagine the faster sine wave as wiggles on the slower sine wave when they're added together, that's how I kind of think of it. And then think of the distortion as chopping off the tops and bottoms of those sine waves. Now suddenly that faster sine wave is being pushed up into the distortion when the slower sine wave rises into the positive and then is being pushed back down out of it when it drops into the negative or it's being pushed into the other side of the distortion. Each wave affects the way the other wave is distorted and that results in some and difference partials. So let's say you've got... Um, A sine wave at 100 hertz plus a sine wave at 200 hertz. Once you distort those together, you start to get the sum, the 300 hertz partial emerges, and the difference, which is 100 hertz again. And that can result in all sorts of interesting things. A guitarist, for example, might play, say, a G major chord with a clean sound, and think it doesn't sound very interesting. Now, not very interesting. You could you could translate that as being too simple in terms of harmonic content. So one way to make it more complex, if you're a jazz guitarist, you might add some extended harmonies. You might add a major seventh or a ninth or a thirteenth or something and add more harmonic complexity that way and make the resulting waveform more complex that way. If you're a rock guitarist, you can just crank up the gain, push it into the nonlinear saturating distortion, add extra harmonics and get those all the individual partials of your G major chord will start to interact with each other and generate new partials that weren't there before, and make the sound more complex and more interesting in that way instead. And they're really just two different solutions to the same problem. How do we make this G major chord sound interesting? Add extra partials, then there's two different routes to doing so. So obviously intermodulation can sound really good in that context, it's arguably the basis of rock and roll. Also. That's probably the aspect of distortion that will sound most wrong to you when there is too much of it, or when it's inappropriate. Like on a full master, for example, a full mix is already very complex. You've got lots and lots of individual sine waves going on, which will all intermodulate with every, you know, every single sine wave will intermodulate with every other sine wave when it's distorted, and the result is too complex. It starts to get messy and noisy, and makes it harder to hear through the mix when there's too much of it. So intermodulation is kind of the magic. It's both what can create surprising new sounds from simple sources, but it's also what's most likely to ruin your mix if you distort it when you really shouldn't have.
0: (laughs) That's a a great example. I really like that that way of thinking about it. you made me think uh, while you were saying that, Dan, of some experience that I have of intermodulation distortion, which is that it allows you to play chords on a trombone. So I don't <laughs> know how many people know I used to play trombone as a as a kid. Clearly, trombone can only play one note at a time unless you also sing through it at the same time. And in that case, you get a complex nonlinear interaction between the voice and the musical resonances that are also already taking place in the instrument and you get intermodulation distortion which creates some and different tones and if you sing the right combination of or sing and play the right combination of notes you can get those extra partials to fill up the frequencies of chords so you can get this um yeah really quite magical effect of apparently playing a chord on a trombone that may be so far off topic that we have to edit it out but (laughs) I'm going to throw it in there anyway.
1: Well, I like that example, and I'm going to have to look up what that actually sounds
2: like. They call it paraphonics or something, don't they?
0: Isn't, isn't that the term? I don't know. I I mean, oddly enough, I, I actually did my, when I was 17, I did a physics project on it where I actually wired up a speaker to my trombone and kind of played tones through it and tried to generate this artificially and measure it and put it into spreadsheets and stuff. Um, but that was a long time ago now. So there's probably been a lot more <laughs> research done on it. I think you can do it on other, you could well, you can certainly do it on the flute. Um, you know, quite a lot of jazz flute players do this kind of stuff. Um, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, famously. It's it's an interesting topic, but um, probably, well, definitely not relevant to, to mastering. Just before we kind of start to round this up, Dan You know, we were talking about the fact that pretty much all nonlinear processing generates extra harmonics. And I I think we can say that, you know, for most processes, if it's fairly mild, then there's a good chance it's a, a musically interesting result, although possibly not for mastering. And then as it gets more extreme, it's more likely to kind of not be musically valid. And we might start to call it distortion as opposed to coloration or any of those other words um you know just for kind of sound manipulation um but i think there's a we were talking just before we started recording about an interesting example you gave of the boundary between compression and distortion and i wondered if you wanted to say a bit more about that
2: yes there is there is a gray area i mean that's that's common with quite a lot of different audio processes i mean there's a gray area between delay and reverb for example Mm. um Uh, a grey area between, I guess, chorusing and flanging. But yeah, compression and distortion. If you take a compressor like Recomp, for example, the stock compressor for Reaper, it gives you the freedom to set the attack and release right down to zero milliseconds, which is actually zero milliseconds, and it becomes a static wave shaper. So it just brutally clips off the signal, there's no attempt to smooth the gain reduction at all. and that's arguably not a very interesting type of distortion, it's um, it's just very static, it doesn't react to the input signal at all, but if you add a tiny little bit of attack and release smoothing, like just a fraction of a millisecond, it becomes a lot more complex. It's still definitely not compression, it's adding harmonics, it's barely controlling the dynamics, you know, um, but it's not just a simple wave shaper anymore because the saturation that's applied to any particular sample will depend to some extent on a short window of time of what's come just before it. Distortion effects, saturation effects that include this kind of memory effect, that kind of hysteresis, tend to be more interesting and more characterful and more analogue sounding than static wave shaper type distortions that don't. That doesn't mean there isn't a place for hard wave shaper I mean, I, I like brutal wave shaper kind of effects for sound design purposes. But for warming up a mix, you probably want something that reacts in a more analog kind of way. So I remember back in the early days of plugins, there were, there, there were you know, valve emulating type plugins, which were just simply a static wave shaper with asymmetry so that you generated even harmonics as well as odd harmonics. And they really didn't sound anything like a valve. Um, They just lacked the subtlety and complexity because a valve doesn't just simply chop off, you know, that sample uh, according to what level it's at all the time. It depends what's just come through it, what's just happened a fraction of a second before affects the way it treats the signal at this instant that we're at now. So yeah, there is, a grey area, yeah. When compression gets very fast, it adds more harmonics and starts to behave more like a distortion or a saturation effect. And I would also say that when saturation becomes more complex, it can start to resemble a very fast compressor um, or becomes more more like a dynamics process than just simply pure clipping.
0: It's it's really interesting, actually, the, the way all of this stuff that we're talking about is a is really a sliding scale you know it's, it's like everything else there there is no black and white there are always shades of gray in between or possibly more interesting colors um in terms of audio i mean well particularly with limiting you know if you push limiting hard um because limiters almost always have very fast attack and release times that for me is why some limiters in particular will often start sounding distorted if if you if the limiter is working as intended probably it shouldn't sound as distorted as straightforward clipping, for example, but it starts to lose life and impact. But I've certainly heard heavy limiting that that
2: sounds crunchy and distorted to me. Um, you could even argue that there is a grey area between clipping and limiting. For example, the FabFilter Pro-L limiter, um, there's a, uh, a look-ahead control, which will go down to zero. And if you set zero look-ahead, then you are clipping... The leading edge of the signal. There's no smoothing at all. On when it reacts to a, a, a fast transient, it will brutally clip the start. So it's like clipping for the attack with limiting for the release. If you see what I mean. And if you dial in just a really, really tiny amount of look ahead, you know you're sort of you're on the grey area there between a look ahead limiter and and clipping of the input. So uh, again, there isn't a hard dividing line really where where clipping necessarily becomes limiting or a brick wall limiter becomes clipping because to a certain extent, if you are brick wall limiting a signal, then you are, you are clipping it. It's just a matter of degree to how brutally you're doing so. Yeah.
0: And, and that kind of feeds into the, the the thing that I was going to say next, in fact, which is, I mean, yes, not just the, the fab filter, but the, particularly with modern limiters, I think where you have maybe a variety of different modes or, styles that you can use. Um, A lot of them will use a combination of carefully applied clipping and limiting to achieve the result that, you know, maybe different flavours of limiting or of the final result. And that is, I think, one reason why it's important, as far as I'm concerned, why I was always preferred to have an unlimited and unclipped mix, or at least only very mild limiting or clipping. um, Because As we've, I think, established at this point, um, limiting and clipping are definitely non-linear processes. So it very much matters what order you do things in. So typically in mastering, we want to apply limiting and or clipping right at the end of the process. If that's done earlier on, then if there are any artifacts in the signal, you know, if you don't need to change it in any way, that's all good. But there's always the risk processing that you do further down the line. Let's say you want to bring out some some high-frequency content, if there's any edge or slightly distorted quality in the tone, that EQ might make it more audible and less pleasant and restrict our options at the mastering stage. So, you know, I'm not going to put down any hard and fast rules. At the end of the day, you know, if people like the way that things sound, then it's their music they're allowed to, to go with it. But I think as a rule of thumb, that's why I prefer to have more control over that stuff, and it's because... When you have these non-linear processes as we started out talking in this episode it very much matters what order you apply them in
1: so are you saying if someone was mixing and they clip their kick and snare that could come out as harshness further down the line
2: i wouldn't want to scare people into not doing what they think is right to their kick and snare in the mix Uh, because they're worried about how it's going to affect mastering processing down the line i would very much urge people not to think in those terms i would say if you found a flavor of distortion that makes your kicks and snares sound the way you want them to sound go with it print it keep it because you know that that's that's good and if you've got your mix sounding the way you want it to sound it's then the mastering engineer's problem to make sure that that translates into a into a master that still sounds the way you want it to sound and not introduce harshness down the line. If you see what I mean, that would be my thinking.
1: Yeah, I agree I, with I w-
2: that. I wouldn't want to scare people into not doing something just in case, oh, that, because it's wrong, because the mastering engineer has said it's wrong to do that. I wouldn't, you know, my philosophy is that that every type of distortion in any amount can sound good in the right context. I don't think there's any you know, inherently bad kind of distortion. It just depends on the right context, and there are so many different contexts and so many different types of distortion that it is quite possible to get it wrong, subjectively speaking. But, you know, don't be afraid to distort elements of your mix. If it's giving you the sound you want, go ahead and do it, because, you know, that's where a lot of magic can come from in a mix, in my opinion. And I I love using distortion and saturation within a mix, I use loads of it all over the place. I, you know, I'm also, I'm a guitar player, so, uh, you know, I love distortion anyway, so that's part of being a, an electric guitar player. Even if you play clean sounds, they're usually not very clean at all. So distortion has been part of my life since I was, you know, 13 years old and I got my first Stompbox distortion, you know. So it's a wonderful and magical thing and, and don't be scared of doing whatever sounds right in your mix is would be my message. So I would... agree with that
0: when you're talking about things like stomp boxes and analog style compression and all the rest of it. On the other hand, I have often had mixes supplied to me that had hard digital clipping on one or more elements in the mix that the client didn't know about, hadn't noticed. um, And when we get a balanced EQ that really works at the mastering stage... You've got this fizzy, gritty, digital distortion on top of it, and I'm, t- I'm t- talking about genres where that's not appropriate. Um, you know, um, and the problem with that is there's not a hell of a lot you can do to get rid of it. As always, it's another, it's another yeah. sliding scale. You know, it's another. It's there are there are people who produce absolutely fantastic mixes where there are very little changes required at mastering. And in those cases, if there is some deliberate distortion of whatever type, it's almost certainly musically appropriate and absolutely fine. There are other situations where somebody, maybe their monitoring isn't uh, set up ideally, or, or maybe they're just not focusing on the particular aspect that kind of leaps out to me at the mastering stage. So, I mean, I completely agree. People should experiment. They should have fun. They should be creative, ideally, ideally if you if it gets to the mastering engineer and they think there's going to be a problem they'll you can have a conversation with them and they can talk to you about it and you can decide together what to do whether you want to you know back off a particular decision in some way or not on the other hand very often there's very little time left for the mastering stage and that isn't possible so you know i i kind of i see that from both sides if we're looking for a mastering maxim for this episode um i think it's one that we've we've had before which is with great power comes great responsibility, and I would add to that, especially if you're talking about nonlinear power, where as as Dan you said, you know the the results can increase exponentially in comparison to yeah the
2: the, the complexity of the output increases exponentially as the complexity of the input increases. That's a defining characteristic. Yeah,
0: yeah. The the the, the power you have over the sound or the power you are wielding with these nonlinear processes ca- can also uh, become exponentially more, more powerful. Well, hopefully people listening will agree that it is interesting and useful to know about this stuff and to think about it. You know, even if we don't know for sure whether a process is linear or non-linear, um, kind of understanding that the order can be important in terms of the processing you apply and the effect that it can have and thinking about that stuff can be valuable. And particularly in mastering where, Generally speaking, distortion, I would say, is something that I don't often deliberately distort something uh, unless it's with the client's explicit approval. I mean, I do in term, in the sense that limiting is technically distortion, but you know, in terms of making something sound more distorted, that's a relatively rare procedure for me. Now, even as I say that, I'm thinking how much I've enjoyed experimenting with, oh, what's that? There's a new plugin that allows you to add all kinds of saturation but as though it was an eq curve the split eq no although that's also that's an interesting idea
2: like, that's more of a transient based thing isn't it do you, uh, do you mean spectre i Waste do mean Factory, spectre. spectre yeah yeah that's a great little plugin yeah
0: it is and i love the ability that that gives me to just kind of bring in a little bit of crunch in certain frequency ranges and not others um at certain times and well you know at that point i'm using it in a A subtle gentle way that I don't feel is distortion and I don't have to (laughs) warn the client about I just send it back to them and see if they like it or not so uh, there's a perfect example of the the complexity of this entire issue John anything else you wanted to add or ask about
1: this episode has jumped between recording mixing and mastering a lot more than regular mastering show episodes but that's okay I just want to say that's okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's a great point Um, Yeah, anybody who's confused um, should go back and listen to it again and see if you can untangle all the threads. (laughs) Um, And there will be a quiz on this later. Well, no, there won't. Uh, Anyway, um, John, Dan, thank you very much for uh, exploring the topic with me. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I hope everybody listening has enjoyed it as well. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. If you did enjoy this episode, please head over to themasteringshow.com forward slash review and leave us a ideally five star rating or review to help other people find the show and spread the word. And as always, thanks for listening.